Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Welcome to the latest episode of Sibylline's podcast series. We continue to unravel the impact COVID is having on business, whilst also exploring themes related to risk mitigation and resilience. Today's podcast is looking at COVID from the perspective of financial crime. It goes without saying that COVID-19 has presented notable challenges to financial institutions, least of which is the need to maintain legal and compliance functions dedicated to detecting and preventing financial crimes in the midst of significant disruption. This is compounded by indications, or at least concerns, that financial crime trends are evolving. In fact, there have been a string of media stories highlighting COVID-related financial crime trends. For example, a rise in opportunistic fraud and criminality through things like social engineering and phishing, the potential misuse of bailout funds and government subsidy fraud, suspicious COVID-related transactions, i.e. through the use of money transfers for charitable collections and the use of crowding platforms that themselves have limited protections. Joining us today to discuss the impact COVID is having on financial crime, along with related compliance and due diligence concerns, are Payal Patel and Samantha Sheen. Singapore-based Payal Patel is the Managing Director of Fintrail Asia. Fintrail works with fintechs on all aspects of financial crime. Payal brings over 14 years of experience in financial services across multiple regions. Samantha Sheen, a former regulator, is a subject matter expert in financial crime prevention. She runs her own business, Ex-Ante Advisory Limited, and is widely sought after to provide her insight and guidance on various financial crime-related topics. Ladies, thank you very much for joining me today. If I may, I'd like to jump right into it, uh, if, you, if you don't mind. And we're going to go in with a, a sort of a, a straightforward question, which is, what is it about the current crisis environment that's making us think about financial crime? Are criminals and opportunists just not respecting the fact that we are in lockdown? Gosh, I'll go first. I think right now we have this really interesting thing happening and I I describe it as a confluence of risk. So in other words, we have the coronavirus epidemic, we have the outbreak, we have the social response and the government response to it, but it does in turn have a knock-on effect in terms of how we actually detect and prevent financial crime. And I'm not sure that we've quite recognize the impact that the crisis is going to have on how people prevent financial crime. And it strikes me that there have been similar cycles to this. So we had the crash in 2008, and it was a few years later, we started seeing financial crime cases being investigated coming out of that. We had post-crash where there was desperation to try and get products and services out there to recoup. Sure enough, 2018-19, we saw financial crime cases coming up, being investigated about wrongdoing then. So I think in some ways, if we're not careful, we're going to lose that awareness and not just go through the same thing again, where it's only several years later, we find out what was really going on right now. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that this current very unique um, situation that we're in is a real breeding ground for for criminals, because what you're seeing are people that are scared, confused and vulnerable. You're seeing a, a real sort of opportunity there for, as you early mentioned, uh, Tamara, things like fishing scams in particular, which we've seen on and off just present itself. But what we're seeing now is this taking place across a whole spectrum 
of industries and in under various guises. And we're seeing a lot of it. We're seeing so much of it that mainstream media regulators are warning people, you know, to be aware of this type of criminal activity. So we're seeing a lot of focus around this, which tells me that that there's much more going on in this space than um, we've previously seen. And I think from our perspective, what we're really seeing and focusing on is really this shift from how people tackle financial crime as a team using their systems and controls now that they're forced to work remotely, where teams have had manual processes, how they're moving those over to automated systems, how they're tracking all these emerging trends um, and how they're using data in ways that they haven't before in order to really preempt some of these um, emerging trends that are being seen now. Oh, brilliant. You know, we're talking about these emerging trends and financial crime trends and sort of being a bit ambiguous with what we're talking about, apart from a few examples. Are we actually seeing new financial crime trends? And, and what is it exactly that we're seeing, if you, if you have a couple of examples? Or are we just seeing evolving old trends? So things that we knew happened before just happening more often. Sam, can you chime in? Yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of history repeating itself, except for it's got a slightly different flavor to it. So I think a lot of the tactics are, are very similar. I know people made a great big deal about cash intensive businesses sort of on the decline. You know, we have to remember as regulated businesses, we don't have as much agility as people think, but criminals have all the agility in the world and are highly entrepreneurial. Um, and I suspect with a lot of them, they just move to a different mode of laundering their cash. I think the the challenge with this, though, is for more conventional institutions who weren't ready for the remote working, where they've relied heavily on face-to-face staff to be able to detect, discuss, follow through, when they think they see financial crime, that's a problem. It's really interesting, Payal, because I've spoken to a couple of people in fintechs, and they're really aware of that a lot of the tactics are the same, but Mm. they might be coming from different areas or involve different products. I've spoken Mm. to people up north who've said their real concern is the social engineering fraud because it's Mm. widened in terms of the topics and themes that they're using, but pretty much the mechanisms for the layering and structuring activity are the same. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Definitely sort of my initial sense is, and Sam, I'm not sure if you you feel differently about this, is that the tech companies to me feel a bit better placed. They, um, They have better use of data. They use technology in a way that your more traditional incumbents and financial institutions institutions have not and are not able to because of the size scale and also the fact that they've just been around for a lot longer so there's not sort of that seamless integration and so when it comes to things like re-establishing monitoring thresholds sort of discussing and collaborating around sort of how we're going to mitigate new and emerging risks and typologies I feel like tech companies are sort of better placed to sort of move very quickly to your to use the word that you use which I think is absolutely correct they're a lot more agile you know to keep up with this type of criminal activity whereas Where I feel like some of the struggle has been in this space has been with a lot of um, sort of older institutions that haven't had the same setup, the same infrastructure to be as as nimble as as the criminals have been in in order to sort of mitigate the type of activity. Yeah, I think probably the biggest area of risk we may not be ready for as an entire financial community is really around the malware. So, you know, the Bayrob case Mm. is a great example of that, right? I mean, it was clever. It focused on online shopping. 
I mean, it, it's, if it weren't so criminal, you'd be really impressed at just how sophisticated it was. Yeah. And I think just given the sheer volume of people online and starting yeah. to feel just a little bit going crazy at home and trying yeah. to find ways to distract, I think that's an area we may not all be really, really alive to and how to mitigate that risk. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely seeing sort of a real focus on on cybercrime. We're seeing sort of a lot of fictitious shops pop up selling items that people are, you know, readily looking to spend money on. There's the obvious ones around sort of face masks and sort of medical supplies, etc. But there's also sort of things like recently we um, we saw something to do with fitness equipment because obviously a lot of people are, you know, to sort of get fit at home and it's very very quick and easy for these types of sites to be set up and for you to then share your details and for those details to then sort of be used in various board related activities so so by the sounds of it yeah there's a lot of old activity just evolving and some new activity in fact taking taking the opportunity of lockdown taking the opportunity of of social social trends in fact shopping well, I wonder if- I wonder also if it's if it's just the evolution of sort of people's use of being online that just means that what we're seeing is criminals evolve and just using technology in in sort of at the same pace right so now where there's a lot more going on online people are forced to use online platforms not only for their shopping but in terms of making payments etc it would only make sense that criminals are using sort of the same channels I was going to say it sort of veers into a, a conversation I was having with somebody a couple of days ago about money laundering and, and placement kind of going, yeah, but Tamara, you know, all the restaurants, casinos, all of this stuff, are, you know, they're closed down. So, so how is the money getting into the system? You know, and, and in terms of the money laundering question, you know, that's, that becomes a sort of a, a nice creative space in terms of yeah, how are the criminals getting the money back into the system? Is that something we're thinking about right now? Or are we concerned more about the lower level the phishing scams, the, the, the fake shops, um, the fraudulent shops um, that, that are coming online. Well, I think you've got the two, right? So you've got fraud on one side and you've got the laundering on the other, yeah. right? So the laundering, I think, is still happening because it, the only difference is it's happening online, okay. right? We're not walking into a, a local bank and handing in a bag of money, right? So I think in some ways that may be easier to trace, provided that as Payal says, you've got the technology and you've, you're thinking about already doing that. If you haven't been doing that with the right kind of systems, that might prove more difficult. I think though from the fraud side, one of the things I'm, I'm finding quite interesting that we haven't talked about a lot is around social benefit fraud. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a lot of emergency funding programs right now for businesses, funding for individuals, people have been furloughed, businesses are applying for grants. You know, I had a case once where I had a completely fictitious payroll company that was allegedly paying the salaries for people on an oil rig up in Scotland. The whole thing was fake. The whole thing was completely fabricated, but it was so brilliantly set up because as they controlled the flow of funds, it looked like they were paying out salaries received from the company. It was actually just laundering a big organized crime group's proceeds. You know, putting aside the risks around, you know, people being denied their benefits and people who really need the cash getting access to it. I do wonder if there are already sophisticated schemes now being set up by criminal groups to get access to those funds um, because there is such a desperate need to get the money out. The last thing we want is to delay those payments. But if I were a crime group, that's where I'd be headed. And I think we're only going to really sort of fully understand the scale and nature of these types of scams in, in months or even years to come. I think, I think now we're too in the midst of everything and trying to resolve a whole array of problems and to sort of help and be proactive in this space that actually I think 
the scale of some of these things and, and how much money will have been lost will only really identify in, in, in some time. Yeah, and, and I suppose you know, it's something that we've identified in the past, which is, you know, as soon as you have a crisis situation, it, it often seems like there's a knee-jerk reaction by the authorities in terms of pushing the money out, putting help back into the system, that all of our normal checks and balances, all of those systems just somehow erode. Uh, they, they all of a sudden don't become important or not as important as the speed required to get things out. But um, ironically, sometimes that check doesn't take as long as we think it does. This will be a real test yeah. of the, all those EIDAS programs we've talked about in Europe, right? So we have a GovID program here in the UK. That's how you get access to your social benefits and a number of different government services, right? So that ha is the main route through which people are establishing their identity in order to get access to these government funds. So it's never really been tested on as big a scale because it's largely been voluntary in the past. But if you talk to folks up in the Nordics, there've been all sorts of concerns about identity theft and impersonation theft. And you know that's gonna be also a really interesting area to look at. Yeah, you, you do find where, you know, a lot of the discussions we're having with clients is where sort of the focus has been, let's try and sort of make sure that we are, we have all the systems and processes in place in order to facilitate sort of remote working and what have you. Don't let all the other balls drop. Don't lose sight of, you know, what does your transaction monitoring tell you? Even basic things, you know, when you do to do an audit, are you doing adequate assurance testing of your business continuity plan that you have in place now? What we're finding is, a lot of sort of focus around sort of making sure you have a robust program in place has sort of shifted now where people are just trying to struggle to sort of establish a new norm and get through the days. We're seeing exactly the same. I think if you were to take it a bit broader when people are reporting on sort of the medical crisis, right? So people are saying, well, we've got X number of people that are ill, et cetera. But people that are now becoming ill from other infections, that now number's starting to rise because all focus is on COVID. I think there's a similar thing that's happening in as teams focus on financial crime, right? The focus is just setting up remote work and getting through the BAU. But actually, some of the other protocols around building what is ro a robust and impactful sort of processes and programs are being deprioritized, which really isn't sustainable. Let's actually break that apart, Payal, because I think that those are interesting and important points to look at. You know, but taking a step back, and, and maybe Sam, you're, you're well placed to answer this, or, or you're following it given past, but how are regulators responding to this situation? Does it matter? And then from there, I would like to dovetail more into what can actual businesses and, and private sector do to safeguard? A number of regulators. Uh, started started slow, but have picked up pace in terms of communicating their expectations around complying with the AML controls that people should have in place. A few have tried to ease the load on regulated businesses by saying, look, non-critical reporting can be put aside for the moment, and we want you to focus on the stuff that matters, such as financial crime prevention. A lot of people have made a big deal about the fact that investigations have been postponed. So there are regulators such as up in the Nordics who've said the SEB investigation into supposed sanction breaches has been postponed for the moment. You're hearing about cases um, that are being adjourned pending a period of time passing before they can all go back to courts. I don't think that's so problematic because investigations tend to involve historical data. It's stuff that's already happened. I think what regulators are struggling with, to be honest, Mara, is they've come to realize they don't have the tech they need 
So they would really like to be able to keep doing the investigations they have begun that they haven't formalized as yet, but they haven't figured out how they remote work, right? How do you actually do the e-discovery? Then if you have collected the information, how do you go through it in a secure fashion? And I think it's been a real eye-opener for a number of regulators about how far behind the curve they are in terms of being kind of technologically evolved or as perhaps as technologically enabled as perhaps they might have wished they were. I'd agree with that. I think here in, in Asia and Singapore in particular, the, the government and regulators are actually incredibly tech savvy. And actually what we've seen is a real push and promotion for the use of digitization. So for example, there's a government scheme now where if there's a company you leverage RegTech, you can apply for a government subsidy that will cover the cost of 80% of the use of that platform and you will cover the remainder, which is quite favorable. And a number of RegTech vendors have lied and are promoting sort of that scheme more broadly. And also there's sort of talk around sort of simplified um, due diligence and what have you. So I think what we're seeing here is government sort of, and, and the regulators, particularly here in Asia, really sort of trying to reinforce this idea of focusing on the use of technology during this time, where we're encouraging contactless payment, non-face-to-face, really think about how can you use technology to continue to enable you to facilitate the business and the products and services that you were offering. And, you know, as you look to continue to grow and hopefully scale your business. However, I think what we need to bear in mind is this isn't about sort of making AML requirements easier for institutions because there's still very much a focus on understanding your risk. So the risk-based approach is still very prevalent and consistent throughout the regulations. What this really is about is really looking at sort of what processes do you have in place? How are you conducting an effective and robust CBD program? How do you do transaction monitoring? And how can you use technology now in a really meaningful and impactful way in order to alleviate some of the manual and in-person processes that you may have had? So what it does, in my mind, is present a real opportunity for organizations to take a step back and really think about how can we make some of these processes and tasks that may have required more manual labor and have been taken us longer to do historically. How can we now take a step back and really think through how we can make these processes leaner? And so really, I I would hope that companies where possible are able to really use as an opportunity to consider operating leaner teams with more sophisticated use of technology. I would give a word of caution on this as well, which is, I know I began by talking about these lags you have between a crisis and then when all the financial crime is discovered. There have been a couple of regulators who have signaled, we might be giving some allowances to you doing stuff remotely, whether it's with your traders, your compliance people or whomever, that's great. But when we roll back in, we've made it clear this was a risk situation. So just like any other risk situation, you are going to need to be able to demonstrate to your regulator if you felt there were weaknesses or there are things that you couldn't do the same way, that as you move back to the new normal, as it's going to be, you have considered and investigated where you thought you had your weaknesses, that you don't just let investigation of alerts pile up, that where there's KYC concerns that couldn't be addressed remotely, that you have prioritized them correctly, So I would certainly say, don't go for the forgiveness is easier than permission approach. When this is all over, you need to think how you're going to resource to check what risks you really didn't have the resource or capacity to follow up on and show the regulator why you prioritize what you did. I agree with that. Something that's 
we're doing a lot of is this idea of stress testing your business continuity plan so where you've now moved to remote working now is a really good time for you to really sort of assess so maybe even do an enterprise-wide risk assessment light um, and really understand sort of what does our process look like in this new environment where are our gaps how critical are those gaps and what are our thoughts around remediation or you know closure of those gaps in the short term and the long term and to your point so I'm really having that fully and clearly articulated so that um, as and when you have sort of internal audits or even regulatory dialogue, you can be very clear around how that decision was made, what factors were considered in terms of assessing the critical nature of those risks. You have a very clear view on how you're going to close them going forward. I mean, I, I agree with that completely. Yeah, that's really interesting. As with Sam, I, I sometimes throw a bit extra caution when we talk about risk-based approaches in time of, of crisis. I'm sort of inverted commas because sometimes once the crisis point is over, depending on how large or small the institution is, we forget to back up and go, where are our vulnerabilities? Because we know we have vulnerabilities because we actually took the regular the regulator by their word and we, we took the simplified approach. We cut corners, we simplified the process. But here I, you know, I know from past experience that this is where we don't just deal with oh, low-level criminality and, and transactions that do get caught by automated systems, but more sophisticated, serious crimes that take years and years and years to uncover. But it's this hole, this gap, that the more sophisticated criminals squeeze into. And then the financial repercussions of that, I think, are a lot more damaging, not just to a company's balance sheet, but to their reputation. You know, significant. So, you know, my big yellow flag is risk-based approach great so long as we're not doing it as a checklist and reviewing our business continuity plan so long as we're not just doing it as a checklist but we kind of go a what is the action once systems are slightly back to normal or once we have normalized a new way of working so i think the, the points you both raise are great and i suppose you know what i would like to highlight to our listeners is this is all great, but where is that crevasse where we fall into cat claw ourselves out of? <laughs> I would also add to this people. I think, you know, I love the risk-based approach. It's how I sort of started my career and I got into compliance. And I used to work in occupational health and safety and I used to investigate fatality cases. And guarantee you in those cases, one of the factors we considered were the people involved. And that's to say, were they going through a divorce? Were they stressed? Had they worked too much overtime and they were exhausted? Um, were they being bullied at work? A whole variety of factors because people seem to forget the circumstances in which people work can have a huge impact on how effective your controls are. And what I'm going to be interested to see from the regulators is nine, 10, 12 months from now, as they start doing their examinations again and visiting businesses, are they going to put their mind to asking the question, so how did you, how did you take care of your people? Because when they do find shortcomings, and it seems to be around particular teams or particular functions that had to work remotely, are they going to look at, well, in what environment do these people have to work? You know, do they have a big extended family? So in order to work effectively, they had to work at night because that's the only time they could work and concentrate. Or were there continuous redundancies happening? You know, I've just heard some news from one person that their workplace has asked everyone to take a 20% pay cut voluntarily and senior management to take a 50% cut. Now that surely must impact on people's ability to do their jobs effectively. So 
I'm really going to be interested and I really hope that regulators will be mindful of the fact that how people feel can really make a big difference around AML controls. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because here in Asia, this idea of remote working, flexible working, isn't something that's particularly mainstream. So something that, especially when I started consulting, I was freelancing, something that I didn't fully appreciate is uh, people love FaceTime here. They love to see you in an office and to do your day. And typically sort of, you know, there's this real kind of work, really late culture and being seen to be in the office and, you know, you seem to be working very long hours, et cetera. So now there's a real cultural shift in work where actually you're not sitting with your team. You're not sit- sitting with your line manager, et cetera. You need to feel empowered and able to make decisions because, you know, you may not be able to contact someone uh, as quickly as you would say if you were in the office or have immediate access to senior members of staff. So really, you know, some of the discussions that I've been having here is around, you know, how are you ensuring that your staff have the right tools? How are you ensuring that they really understand sort of the nature of the risk that they are trying to mitigate personally um, through their role? Um, What does that involve in terms of making decisions? How confident do they feel making those decisions? And how are you empowering them and allowing them to, to make those decisions? How much, you know, and how are you sort of stepping back because you have to in order to be an effective leader in this environment and allowing your team to make those decisions, but still giving them the support and oversight that they need in order to feel confident in doing so. Yeah, thanks. That people dynamic, the person dynamic is often so overlooked, isn't it? But when we start looking at financial crime, it's it's the psychology of becomes one of the most important questions to claw back and try and understand where things sort of originated from. So thank you both for bringing, bringing that up. This dovetails nicely into me putting you on the spot question. You know, we've talked a lot about is financial crime evolving sort of within this COVID environment? What are, what are the risks we're facing? How are regulators looking at it? You know, the expectations that private sector needs to consider. So with all that in mind, what are your top three? What are your top three best practices for achieving resilience to evolving financial crime risks? And this could come from any perspective. So that's my get out of jail for free card. So top three tips for building resilience to financial crime. Okay. I'm going to try it. My top three. Um, Number one, you are not as smart as you think. I tell myself that all the time. People say to me, oh, you really know all this stuff. You're really diligent. I'm like, no, it's actually fear that I'm going to give some wrong, wrong advice. So I'm constantly challenging myself. Did I get it right? Do I need to read something extra? I think that's really important. So if you think, if you think you're a subject matter expert, no, you'll never be 100% 100% expert. So challenge yourself, right? The other thing is, I think, stay curious. In some sort of perverse way, I am in some ways really quite stunned the creativity that criminals have. So I try and maintain my curiosity. I try not to narrow my thinking. I really work hard to go, no, I'm going to read the end of this case. So I'm actually going to look through the rest of this evidence because I bet this story doesn't end the way I anticipate that it will. And I, I think the third thing is, don't take yourself so seriously. You know, it, it, it's quite hilarious. My husband is also an MLRO and we share a tiny office. And, you know, we've really made a point of kind of having fun in the day and having a good laugh and calling some folks who have absolutely nothing to do with this job. And sometimes we talk about what we do with them because even they give me great ideas or I hadn't thought about things differently. And I think if you don't broaden who you're interacting with right now, it can be really difficult. To, to keep your mind open and curious and challenged. So I hope that doesn't sound too fluffy, but those are my three. I like them. Paya. 
Okay, so I made a few, I've made a few notes of um, a couple that sprung to mind. Okay, so mine would be sort of work out how best to collaborate, either with industry experts or within your team. And this may take a bit of tweaking. I don't think more conversations is necessarily the best approach. I think it's about finding sort of a how many touch points you need with your team in terms of not only subject matter expertise and to and discuss sort of work-related matters, but also to ensure that you're keeping those relationships and that kind of work dynamic and, and relationship building with your team ongoing during this time. I think it's important to make sure that everyone within the team feels like they have, you know, people that they can talk to. I think we're all in very unique personal situations that we may not all be fully aware of so it's important that everyone feels like they have a support infrastructure and one that works for them so it's also okay I think my second point to say no there are a lot of webinars at the moment there are a lot of you know meet online meetings there are a lot you know there, there is so much I think it's okay to say no to some of them I think it's okay to say I've got zoom fatigue or you know I, I just don't feel like I need another webinar in my life and to you know really take it as an opportunity to really prioritize where you want to focus your time and attention in a way that best serves you. And for me, and something that I've kind of played around with, because I work sort of remotely, uh, you know, as standard at the moment, um, I'm based out in Singapore with the majority of the team out in London, is really work out sort of how you want to structure your day in a way that, that works best for you and allows you to be as productive as possible so for some people that won't necessarily be sort of doing a nine to five um, if you have young children like I do it, it's virtually impossible at the moment you know I think work out sort of where you can carve out chunks of time to work in the day uh, time where you're going to be most productive and also be okay with asking for help ask for help from your team uh, you know if, if you can't make a deliverable if you're struggling with a topic or an area just you know reach out and, and ask for help because now is the time really where we should all be working together and sort of ensuring that we can all support each other as both of you were speaking I was, I was writing your, your top threes on a piece of paper and it took me back this is going to reveal where i grew up it took me back to kindergarten i don't i i've lived in the uk for 20 years and i don't know that the the british equivalent you know, a place that you sit in school before you go into grade one uh, you're wee right really little and in, in every kindergarten room there were your golden rules do unto others as you you know a bit of a spin-off of the ten commandments so so here we're saying that to be resilient we, we need to come up with with sort of the golden rules for financial crime resiliency and, and the golden rules really boil down to who we are as people and how resilient we are so we aren't as smart as we think we are so we need to collaborate All right we need to reach out we need to be creative we need to be willing to speak to a wide range of people but at the same time it's okay to say no if we spread ourselves too thin we lose we lose grasp of, of the big picture so we need to stay curious, absolutely 100% curious, and whilst being curious or the success to curiosity is to remain flexible, both in terms of our thinking patterns, our, our working patterns, so that we can process and we understand and we ask the right questions. And asking the right questions really is about being curious and, and pushing out our own um, comfort zone. So, it's, uh, and like Sam said, you know, I'm trying to understand the criminal and where they're going next, because they are always ahead of us. Uh, and, and we've discussed this for decades, decades, about how criminals are always two steps ahead. Um, and in fact, they are. Uh, so, so how do we think in their shoes? Oh, that's just being creative. So curious creativity, 
flexible working hours, working under pressure, stress with a two and three and a half year old yelling in the background and a dog barking and your partner saying, I've had enough. So there we go, personal stressors. And with that, just don't take yourself too seriously. Ask for help. And at the end of the day, if we bring all of these golden rules together, at the end, we're all people. We're all people who are trying to fight financial crime, regardless of whether you work in a massive multinational institution, you know, financial center, or the smallest fintech. The principles stay the same, don't they? Last question. So once we've just set up the golden rules, let's conclude with a very quick recap of what you feel the future holds. You know, everybody's talking about COVID. We're all becoming a bit COVID obsessed. Uh, personally, I, I, I try to, to think about something different um, on my days, but we're a bit COVID obsessed and for reason. You know, it, it is a crisis point and it's, it's challenging how we're, we work and therefore challenging how we think. So what does the future hold? What does the immediate future hold? If we're projecting into the next 12 months maximum, what does the future hold for financial crime? And is this scenario creating stressors and pressures and new risks that will be challenging us in 12 months to come? Or once systems are back to a new normal, will things begin to settle? Sam, can we start with you? Oh, I always start. <laughs> It must be this, this Canadian connection. You know, it I'm is. Like... <laughs> I'm going to hope that Pale does the good cop thing. I'm going to do the bad cop thing. Um, and I'm going to reveal oh, my no age. I, I, I'm going to reveal mm. my age. I've been through more than one crash, which not to say I'm 100 years old. I'm not a Dorian Gray. <laughs> but I think if we learned anything from 2008, I think it, we're going to have one of those mini periods after this. I think the economy is going to contract. I think a lot of businesses right now will not come out of this going, ooh, let's go hire some more people or buy some more stuff. There is going to be a period of reflection around, did we need all these people? We have furloughed a lot of people. Do we have the work to bring them back and do, particularly for larger institutions? I think that will lead to a lot of instability. It will lead to a large flow of capable compliance people coming out on the market. And all of that informs how people behave and what the whole environment is around financial crime prevention. I'm not sure what the best way is to tackle that, but I hope we look back on how we dealt with it after 2008. It was a tough go. It was really tough. Some people's careers never quite recovered, but I'm hoping there is a degree of humanity that I've seen more and more from people that it sort of goes out and pollinates across everybody that we actually take a bit more care of people. And as we think about this for financial crime, that we can't lose our really valuable people. We, we need to still make them feel appreciated, but at the same time, we need to figure out what are we going to do as a community to, to keep ourselves together and really focused on this fight? Because I think the economy is going to be, be a really big distractor for people. Thanks, Sam. Paya. Yeah, I, I don't really know that I can play good cop because I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that view. I think what we're going to see is firstly, I think we're going to have people take stock of how they structured their teams, how they use technology, how they were able to facilitate people working remotely, how, how do their global and local teams work, how were they communicating. I think there's going to be a real sort of review of how people work, how teams work. I think we're going to see a greater acceptance of remote working. I think tomorrow you and I had this discussion sort of a while ago that, you know, there, there is sort of 
like a lot of use of the term sort of remote working, working from home and flexible working, all of which are slightly different things, but they're all use, being used interchangeably now. But I think what we are going to see is the ability for people to work flexibly is going to become more and more normalized, We're, especially within sort of compliance, because they've had to now there's, and so people will have a feel for what that looks and feels like in practice so I think we're going to be seeing more than that I also think there's going to be sort of an opportunity for people to take stock of what their their business portfolio is and I think the key will have been diversification right those companies who had sort of one point of contact for their supply who had one product suite that they were relying on etc will you know if that wasn't something that people were particularly interested in this in at this time or was impacted by sort of the lockdown they will be in a position, you know, if they do survive this, if um, there will be definitely an appreciation now about thinking about, you know, who are our suppliers? Are we spreading ourselves across multiple supplies? So if one goes down, we've got a number of others. How many products do we have available? Which of those, you know, are allow us to have enough diversification that we've not effectively put all our eggs in one basket? Thank you. I'd like to try to be a good cop, but It'll be the first time in my life, so um, I don't even know. I don't even know. Wouldn't even know where to start. But I don't think we were entirely bad cops either. At the end of the day, there's a realism of the environment in which we find ourselves, which is different to previous crises that we've seen. The 2008 financial crisis, for example. You know, this is different, and and this is forced different habits, forced different realities. So you know, at the end of the day things will evolve somehow and, and I suppose uh, 12 months time it'll, it might be interesting to reconvene and go hey well, what did happen where are we um, is it systems back to normal or have our teams changed significantly so with with that said and having you know, my highlight today really um, apart from all of your contributions was setting up the golden rules so thank you for, for, for that Singapore based Payal Patel managing director of Fintrail Asia Samantha Sheen former regulator, we won't highlight that too much. <laughs> <laughs> now business owner of Ex-Ante Advisory Limited, both spectacular ladies, both spectacular firms. Thank you so much for joining me um, this morning, this afternoon for, your, for you, Payel. And look forward to chatting with you guys offline once again, but thank you again very much for, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Cheers, thank you.